to technology, you know. And then I got to get my other technology going here. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercies that are new every morning, for your great faithfulness. And we thank you that you brought us here together. We pray now that you quiet our hearts and minds. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak not only through me as I speak, but also in the ears and hearts of everyone here, that we might hear what you want us to hear and that we might go forth encouraged. And uh, we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our, our church is going through some changes, too. As a matter of fact, for the last year, uh, I have been not an official interim pastor, but kind of a quasi-interim pastor as we searched. Actually, it was about a year and a half. And uh, God sent us somebody. He started in January, and it's been a, a delightful new experience. He's fresh out of uh, Dallas Seminary, just graduated. Uh, he spent four years interning at uh, Denton Bible Church, so he was well-trained. And, uh, you know, it's been really cool because he's the same age I was when I came to pastor that church. We're actually going to the church I pastored for 15 years. And it's almost deja vu as, yeah, deja vu all over again, as, as I look back and, and I see him all excited and, you know, pumped coming in. In fact, I, I had to laugh when he was uh, candidating. I was, on the, I was on the search team. And uh, when he was candidating, you know, he, was, he and his wife were very impressed with our little church. And when I say little, I mean little, uh, very little. Uh, about, I think we run maybe 50, 60 people, and that's half of those are children. Uh, but, um, but he made the comment after one meeting that we had, uh, this seems like almost the perfect church. <laughs> I told him later that I kind of, you know, as, as he walked out because there is no such thing as a perfect church. Now, one day there will be because we'll all be in heaven. But right now, while you're on earth, if you've got people, you've got problems. And if you've got a church, you've got people. If you don't have people, you don't have a church. So uh, there are no perfect churches. So, but, but I look back to the years when I started there, and I was coming fresh out of Bible college. Well, not fresh. I'd actually been a camp director and youth pastor for about seven years. But, but this was my first pastorate. And uh, our church, you know, it, uh, tiny, tiny houses are the rage, all the rage today. Well, I, I pastored a... Is it working? It's not changing anything. Is it on? I have, I have numbers here. There it is. I pastored a tiny church. Now that actually isn't a picture of our church building. But sometimes it felt that way. There were 19 people when I came. Uh, and, uh, well, not half of them were children, but I'd say at least a third of them were children. It was a really, really tiny church. But I was fresh out of Bible college. And, well, not fresh, like I said, seven years doing other things, but this was my first pastor. I was excited. I was pumped. We were coming into Greenville. This was, this was an opportunity to do what every young pastor 
knows is his responsibility, and that is to grow the church as big as he can possibly grow it, and it will become the biggest church in town. And uh, with that in mind, I began to digest uh, all the church growth books that I could find, and I found great uh, instructions like, uh, you know, you got to, yeah, you need that. They forgot the donuts there, but... Uh, you know, my, my idea was, you know, whatever it takes to build this church, we're going to build it. And, and so I would read these, and I'd get all these ideas, and I had, had uh, you know, in my mind the vision of the church growing and growing and growing, and, and, and uh, because that's how it's supposed to go. You know, if, if it's a healthy church, they say, the church is going to be growing. It's going to be getting bigger, and, and there's going to be a progression. And uh, I, I'm happy to say I was wildly successful. This is a picture I took just before I left for another ministry uh, of my congregation. <laughs> no, it isn't. Actually, in the 15 years I was there, we grew, grew up to about 60 people. And that was just about the time that the economy crashed in the, you know, in the late 80s. And we had families move away and leave, so we went back down again. And then another wave came and we, we grew again, and then we went back down again. And it was kind of a roller coaster existence. And, and by God's grace, I stayed there for 15 years, and it was a wonderful time, but it didn't, f it didn't fit what it was supposed to fit because everything I'd read was your church, if it's healthy, is going to be big and it's going to be growing, it's going to be thriving, you're going to have new people all the time, you're going to have to be building new buildings, you're going to have to be doing all of this stuff. And I found out, you know what? It doesn't always work that way. And so I began to have to rethink my concept and my understanding of ministry and I finally came to the point about halfway through my time there of realizing that it, you know we may never be the biggest church in town and in Greenville that's was especially true because at that time we had the highest number of churches per capita in the United States if, if not the world uh, there was literally well not literally but there, there was virtually a church on every street corner Still are. It's a very, very churched town. But I began to have to realize I'm going to need to rethink things. And I came to the conclusion that if we live by numbers, we'll die by numbers. And so we began to focus on, let's be the best. If we're going to be a small church, let's be the best small church we can be. Well, one thing that helps change your perspective on ministry our mission trips. Have you ever gone on a mission trip? Some, you know, I, I remember going to uh, Mexico and Central America way back when I was in Bible college, and it was, it was an amazing experience. But I want to talk to you about a mission trip in the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 10 today. I'm looking at my own slides, and I forget to change you, change it and give you your slide. We're going to look at a mission trip in the Gospel of Luke. And it's a very unique mission trip that I think helps us put into perspective 
God's priorities in ministry, whether it's a church or whether it's personal. To set the stage, you remember, I've been preaching through Luke when I've come over here because during my year and a half kind of filling in at our church, I just started going through Luke and our pastor has come now and I don't get to preach through Luke anymore. So, so, so y'all get the benefits. I'm just keeping on going in Luke. And so if they come back some other time, it'll still be in Luke until we get all the way through. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, I, like I told, told my congregation, now hopefully you'll have somebody before then. Uh, but uh, we're going to stay in Luke. And if you f- remember, some of the things that we've covered in Luke is, you know, as, as Jesus' ministry developed, and as Luke lays it out, Luke portrays a group of disciples following him, not just the 12. Most of the time when we think of Jesus' ministry, we tend to think of just him and the 12, you know, kind of going along a, a small band of brothers. But he had a, actually had quite an entourage that went with him, men and women who were, were followers, they were disciples, they were hanging on every word, they were watching the miracles. And, and Jesus had just sent the 12 out on a small mission trip. And they had come back and Jesus had debriefed them. But now, Jesus expands that. In Luke 10, first few verses, it says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him into every town and place where he was about to go. So, Jesus now chooses 72 or 70, depends on the translation you have. Uh, we're not going to quibble about the, n- the number today. Some have 70, some have 72. The basic concept is still the same. Jesus takes 70. Now this picture here shows 70 men. I like to be different. I don't think it was necessarily all men. You know, who knows? Because he had women followers. He had women disciples. Maybe he sent some women out too. Who knows? But he sent 70. Some say, and and this may well be, that part of what's happening with that number 70 is Luke is foreshadowing the gospel going to the nations. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 10 and look at the table of the nations, there are 70 nations there. And as Jesus is expanding his ministry, maybe that's what's in view. Maybe Luke is using that to say, you know, the gospel is going to go far and wide. But it says he appointed 72 others, so we're not talking about the 12 this time. We're talking about another 70 uh, or 72 people. Sent them two by two ahead of him into every town and place where he was going to go. Jesus, it says, was headed to Jerusalem. But that doesn't mean he was taking a beeline straight there. He was moving in the direction of Jerusalem toward his destiny, but he's sending people on ahead because he's hitting villages. And they're going with a message. Now, before we get to the message, we talk about the preparations. Jesus says, this is what you're supposed to do to get ready for this mission. He said, first of all, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So his first advice, pray. Second, he says, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Well, that's an encouraging thought. And then he says... Don't take a purse, don't take a bag, don't take sandals. Now, I don't think that necessarily means he meant go barefoot, although some 
commentators say that's exactly what he meant, but I think he's saying don't take extra provisions. Don't take extra, don't, don't take a purse, don't take any money, don't take a, a bag with maybe some extra clothes in it, don't take some extra sandals. And he says, don't greet anybody on the road. Now he's not saying be rude, but in the culture of that day, greetings took time. You didn't just say, hey, how you doing, like we do. You know, you stopped, you talked, you chatted, you, you exchanged thoughts. He wants him to understand the urgency of the task. Now it's interesting, when we send somebody on a mission trip, we go out of our way to prepare them. You now we tell them what the culture is going to be. We tell them uh, what to be ready for. We get them to raise support. We get them to make sure they have everything they need. Jesus says, I want you to go, and I want you to go just as you are right now. Turn around, head out, and oh, by the way, you're going out like lambs among wolves. I think I would have probably rethought the mission trip at that point. Take nothing for the journey. Well, what's the message? The message is very simple. He says, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, literally if a son of peace is there or a child of peace is there, your peace will rest upon them. If not, it will return to you. What does he mean? He says, when you go, come in, say shalom. And if this is somebody who is receptive to our message, receptive to, to who you are representing, then that peace is going to rest on them. If not, it's going to come back to you, and you're probably going to move on. He says, stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages, and don't move from house to house. So he doesn't want them to be like vagabonds. He doesn't want them to just be bumming off of people, going from house to house. He says, whoever receives you, you stay there. And the whole time you're in that city, you stay in that house and eat and drink whatever they set before you and trust my provision. And this is just kind of an aside, but on that mission trip that I took down to uh, Mexico and Guatemala, uh, we spent a couple of weeks at uh, a uh, kind of a remote school, uh, Bible school, and we went into some churches doing services and evangelism. And, and I remember this one particular Sunday, the missionary who was with us, at the, near the end of the service, the pastor called him and the missionary went outside the building with the pastor. And when, when the missionary came back in, you could see his face looked, he, he, he looked sick. That's about the best I can say. He, he looked like somebody had just given him the worst news of his life. And after the service, he came up to us and, and said, well, you're about to get your baptism of fire. And we had no idea what he meant. But what we found out is this church wanted to do something special for us. So they prepared a meal with sandwiches and lettuce. If you've ever been south of the border, don't eat that stuff. And Kool-Aid. <laughs> and this was the verse that we remembered. Eat whatever is set before you. We couldn't refuse. And I, who tend to like food, said if God can protect me from one glass of Kool-Aid, he can protect me from two. Not a single member of our team got sick. And you know, at, now at other times during the trip, yeah, we did. But from that meal, nobody got sick. And 
So, you know, as a friend of mine said, God looks out for his dummies. You know, he looks out for the people willing to trust him. So that was your, your etiquette for the mission. Well, what about the message? When you enter into a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. And that's your message. You come in, you heal, you do the same miracles, basically, that I have been doing. And then as people watch that, as people are impacted by it, you tell them the kingdom of God is near. Well, what if they don't accept you? Well, it says in, in verse 10, when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from your feet is a warning to you. You know, contrast that with James and John, who earlier had wanted to call down fire on, on a Samaritan village. He said, no, no, you don't do that. But you do. Make testimony to them. But then he says, don't forget the message. And he says, don't just walk out and, and say, okay, you're not going to accept us. We're not going to tell you what we were going to tell you. He said, nevertheless, understand this. The kingdom of God has come near you. And then Jesus drops a bomb. Verse 12. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than that town. And they knew what that meant. Sodom was sort of held up as one of the, the worst of all possible examples. And he said, the town that rejects you, Sodom will have a better day at the judgment. And then Jesus kind of moves off into an aside. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Well, he didn't think it could get worse, but it just did. Sodom was a horrible example, but now he's held up two Gentile cities. And he says, if, you know, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and if you notice on the map, they're very close to Capernaum. They're in that area where Jesus circulated a lot, so they'd seen a lot of what he had done. He says, woe to you, cities, because it's going to be more bearable for two Gentile cities than for you. And Capernaum, remember, if you remember way back early in, in Luke when we came through, Capernaum was the city that wanted Jesus. It was kind of, Jesus is our homeboy. We want you to be with us. And Jesus stayed there. Even today, you'll see a sign outside of Capernaum that says, Capernaum, the city of Jesus. And he says, Capernaum, my, quote, hometown, as it were, will you be lifted to the heavens? No. You'll be down to the depths. And then he drops one final bomb. And this is sort of the, the final word of encouragement for the disciples as they are about to go out. He says, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. So he said, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves, but understand that as you go out, you are going out as my representatives. And if they reject you, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And if they reject me, they're really rejecting the one they claim to worship, the one they claim to serve, the Father who sent me. Well, the 70 go out. 
and it doesn't say how long they were out, but they come back, and, and they come back with the shortest missionary report ever. Actually, I'm sure it was longer than this, but this is what Luke gives us. The report, one verse, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now that sounds kind of cool. Can you imagine, you know, I didn't like all the lambs among wolves stuff, but, you know, can you imagine having been a part of that and going out? And, and again, these aren't the 12 who have been intimately with Jesus all the time. These are from the larger group that's been following him. And, and they've seen some stuff, but they haven't been right in the thick of things. And now they've gone out and they've gone into villages and they've been able to heal people. And they've been able to cast out demons. And, you know, it doesn't say they raised anybody from the dead, but we know when Jesus sent the 12 out, that was part of the instruction. Maybe they raised some people from the dead. Who knows? Luke doesn't give us that. What he does give us is even the demons are subject to us. These guys came back from the mission trip pumped. They were excited because they'd seen the power of God and the demons are subject to us in your name. And that sets up a teachable moment. Because Jesus now gives them a little lesson. The lesson begins, Jesus replied, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So as, as the, 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 the 70 or 72 have come back, they're pumped. They're saying even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, and it almost seems cryptic at the moment, I saw Satan fall like a lightning from heaven. I've given you power to step on serpents and scorpions. That doesn't mean you go out of your way just to step on them. But the point is, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. Nothing's going to hurt you. And they said, yeah, that's right, that's right. But then Jesus says, but. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They come back all pumped. We're ready to take on, send us out on another mission trip, Lord. Jesus said, yes, you're right. I've given you authority, but that's not what you're to delight in. What you should delight in is that your names are written in heaven. That you belong to me, and by attachment with me, you belong to my Father. And then something amazing happens. It says, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew records this same speech, but he doesn't include that phrase, full of joy. And, I, you know, the gospel writers each had their own purpose. But, but it's interesting that Jesus has just finished talking about them rejoicing because their names are written in heaven. And then it says, 
And then Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, you know, sometimes we see Jesus, or at least we imagine Jesus, as kind of a taciturn, uh, you know, almost a Winston Churchill kind of guy, you know, just kind of walking around like that. But here it says Jesus is filled with joy. He's gotten this report back from, from the, the 70 uh, who have gone out. He's seen not only what they've done, but more so he's seen their excitement. And he's rejoicing in what God has done. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. You know, these aren't the Pharisees, these aren't the Sadducees, these aren't the, the scribes, these aren't the professional religionists. These are just everyday people who began to walk with Jesus. And he said, I praise you, Father, that you've revealed these things to them. For this is what you were pleased to do. Verse 22, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You know, when I read that, it reminded me of John chapter 1. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. Well, then Jesus has one last thing to say. It, it appears now he's talking to the twelve. Because it says he turned to his disciples and said privately. So now we've gone from the big group down to the small group again. And he just says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. He said, you guys are very privileged right now. David would have loved to have seen this. You know, Isaiah would have loved to have seen this. Ezekiel, Daniel, any of them would have loved to have seen this. Even John the Baptist would have loved to hang around and see this. But he that is least in the kingdom is greater than John. Blessed are you for what your eyes have seen. And what came to my mind as I read that was Thomas after the resurrection. Because he said, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are they who have not seen, that's you and me, and still have believed. What does it all mean? You know, how, do we, how does this relate to putting ministry in perspective? Well, I think we can walk away with at least, now again, this passage is really rich. We could stay weeks in this passage and explore some of the, the things that God has given us there. But I just want to hit on four principles that can be applied personally in your own ministry and it can be applied corporately as a church. One, the importance of prayer. Isn't it interesting? Jesus has just commissioned 70 or 72 people to go out into the villages and he says, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into his harvest field. Well, wait a minute. I thought you were just sending about 70 out. But even in the midst of that, he's telling these disciples, pray that God will multiply what you're doing. Pray that he will work in you and will send others out to preach the message of the kingdom. So one, never underestimate the importance of prayer. 
when it comes to ministry. Two, a sense of total dependence on God is imperative. Jesus sends this, this crowd out and he says, don't make any preparations. Don't take that bag of money that you might have, that little, little nest egg. <clears throat> don't take a, a lunch sack of food. Don't take extra shoes. Don't take extra clothes. Don't take anything. Just go and depend on me. And depend on me to provide through my people. One thing that I noticed early in my pastorate is how often as I read the church growth books, and it's not to say that they're all bad. They aren't. There are good things in them. But how often I noticed that most church growth books were merely how to build a business written with Christian terminology. And so often we resort to that. Figure we've got to build our church. We've got to get it up. So we've got to do this and this and this and this because this is what the books say to do. What God says is depend on me. Now, again, I'm not saying that all of those things are bad, but I'm saying if those are your primary approach, if that's what you're doing, yeah, you might get people. You might end up with that massive auditorium that I showed a picture of. But you also might miss really ministering to people. Depend on God. Say, God, we're here. We want to serve you. We want to bring the message of Jesus Christ. We want to bring the message of the kingdom to this community. Lord, use us. We may not have a ton of resources, but you are our unlimited resource. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. We're trusting you. Third, Remember that we face a defeated foe. Now that doesn't mean that he can't cause problems. He can. But this was even before the cross as Jesus was saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority over him. You know, so often, you know, I don't even remember who I heard say this, but it hit me like a ton of bricks. And so often when we think of, of Satan opposing God, we tend to fall into a dualism idea where Satan is as powerful as God is, and it's a, it's a you know, he's fighting God, and, and we're kind of in the middle, and Satan is a creature. Yes, he's more powerful than we are. But in comparison to God, Satan is a speck of dust. That doesn't mean we disrespect him. It does mean we realize that he is a defeated foe. Now we, you know, I'm not going to go out and step on a scorpion just to, actually I do that quite frequently at our house because I wear, don't wear shoes a lot and we have those. It's not fun. But that's not the point. The point isn't go pick up a snake or go step on a scorpion or go test God to see if he'll really protect you. The point is, going back to dependence, you can trust him. He is your protector. And he will bring you through. And then finally, and I think maybe most important, 
do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. As I went through that passage, I kept coming back to that one phrase, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Isn't that an interesting thing for him to say in the context of that mission trip and missionary report? Guys, I'm not as concerned about the results or the fact that the demons have been subjected to you. What I'm concerned about is that you are filled with joy Rejoice! Your names are written in heaven. If you know Jesus Christ, your name is written in heaven. He knows your name. In the book of Nehemiah, we're not going to turn there. After they finished building the wall, it came time to dedicate the wall. Do you remember what happened? They get together, Ezra reads the law, and the people just break down. They fall apart. They're crying and they're weeping and they're wailing and they're mourning because they see, oh, we are so far from where we should be. And then they send the word out, stop crying. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to. I thought we were supposed to. You know, when we see how horrible we are before God, we're supposed to cry and we're supposed to weep. And uh, No, we said, stop. This isn't a day for mourning. This is a day for celebration. And understand something. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, that's the difference, and that's when little churches begin to crumble, is when they forget that the joy of the Lord is your strength. We think, in our culture, strength is in numbers. God says, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. The joy of the Lord is your strength. If you are rejoicing in him, filled with his joy, then ministry comes into perspective. Because you're not doing it, well, we've got to build up this church because we've got bills to pay. No. Our names are written in heaven. We belong to God and we want to share that with people. So they can belong to God, so that they can be part of this kingdom. It's interesting. Just a few verses down the line, and we'll see this next week, because we're going to be in the second half of Luke 10 next week. (coughs) Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Because if you love the Lord your God, you are filled with that joy. And that joy overflows into ministry. When you think about missions, first of all, don't think missions just in terms of foreign countries. Everything is missions. Everything is missions. You know, we're like that 70. We've just been sent to North Texas. But God has called us to reach out to the world around us And the first step is in loving and rejoicing in him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Rejoice that your name is written in his book, that you know him, that he has loved you, that he has made you his child. And then turn your focus outward. 
And when you do that, God does great things. I stayed at that little church 15 years. And we did not have 30,000 people when I left. We probably had 30, 40. But that church is still going. Ironically, it almost failed. They had actually taken a vote to close the doors. And I did something that I said I would never do. I had already left. I went back and talked to them one more time. And I said, you can't do that. I said, now it may be time for this church to close its doors. But you let God make that decision. First, you at least need to try and say, God, we're depending on you. Will you provide a pastor? He did provide a pastor. Church went on, is still going, just called a new pastor. Are we the biggest church in town? Nope. About the same size as we were then. But God is still touching lives. It's not about size. It's not about numbers. It's not about finances. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We love you. We pray that you'd help us never to be caught up in the mindset that is so prevalent in our culture, and that is the success mindset that says you measure your success by your statistics. Lord, help us to remember that you have a much different set of measurements. And the first of those is, do we love you? And are we filled with joy at that relationship? Fill us with your joy today. And may we go forth encouraged in Jesus' name.